We're going to talk about small groups in just a little bit, and uh, really toward the end of the uh, message and study in Isaiah 6, I invite you to turn there. And uh, as you turn there, I want to point out we've kind of debuted a couple of banners this morning. Moved them out front for you to see for particular purposes. We announced some time ago, and we want you as a church body and family to become familiar with this, and our next pastor, I promise you, will be passionate about this. I'm looking forward to what God's going to do in and through his heart and vision as he grasps this purpose statement. Our mission is to make disciples who do what? Who make disciples. Can I tell you my observation of church life over four decades of ministry now is this. We've done a good job of making disciples over the years. I did it in traditional ways. I taught a Sunday school class on any given Sunday. I preached a Sunday morning message. I preached a Sunday night message. I preached a Wednesday night message. I usually led a men's Bible study among other discipleship times in the week and so a minimum of five times a week I downloaded God's people with all this knowledge about the word of God that God was giving me I just passed on to them and somehow I expected that to make disciples and it did disciples of a certain kind but not the kind of disciples that Christ really made and let me just come at it this way I learned two decades into ministry that when I look back on 20 years of ministry, I could not name, I told you this before, I could not name a single deacon or church leader that had led somebody else to Christ. And it sure seemed to me like if I were doing the kind of discipleship that Christ was, that those who were following would also start downloading and giving that information and making disciples of other people, right? When instead what was happening was people were getting this information, but I learned something 20 plus years ago, just getting the download, getting the information was not really helping people transform others. And so the whole goal was not... It needed to be moved because the whole goal before was information. When now I've learned that God wants more than information, study the Gospels, study what he did with the 12 disciples, and this is what you'll learn. He didn't just want God's people to get a bunch of Bible head knowledge, information, right? He wanted application, not just information. He wanted it to be transforming their lives. And I'm going to give you the sermon outline here on this banner that we've moved out toward the front. That's the purpose, to make disciples who are being changed, to help others become disciples who are being changed, dot, 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 who are continuing to do the same in their lives from generation to generation. And that's an exciting thing, by the way. One of the exciting things about this church from the survey, and you'll hear an announcement, we're going to give a report soon about that, but from the survey that we did is there are a number of generational relationships in this church. Grandparents, parents, and their kids. And now they're grandkids. They're just being built. More and more generations are uh, flowing through this church body, and that's a a solid, wonderful thing. So making disciples who make disciples is a good thing as long as the process is understood. How do we make disciples? By allowing God to move us to reach up, reach in, and reach out. And you can go to sleep now because that's the outline of the message. Yo, no, that's a time for no, yo. I want to bring you, and uh, you'll see how that fits in the message in Isaiah 6. I want to bring you to Isaiah 6 with me this morning and ask you to stand with me out of reverence for the word of God as we read the first few verses. Let me start in verse 1. In 
the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, I don't know how in the world you and I read this and even begin to comprehend what he saw. We've already talked about big God, haven't we? So big that he has named the stars of the heavens, my beloved. I can't even remember my three kids' names half the time. We live in a galaxy with over a hundred million stars. There are a hundred million galaxies, and my God calls them all by name, never interchanging their name once. And that's who Isaiah saw in the year that King Uzziah uh, died. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. We just sang really a hymn, though it wasn't written when hymns were written. We just sang one from this text. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. You know them as angels. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face because it wasn't about him. With two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, you need to know the tense of the original language here because they weren't just saying it and then moving on. They were repeating this again and again and again, 24-7, 365 days a year. Endless time, eternity past, and they'll continue it in eternity future. And I can't wait to hear the seraphim singing this. You who criticize repetition, God loves it when it's all about him. And he's, this is what he hears them singing, or rather saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of, of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As they sang or said that, the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why do you say that? Because mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That he would hear us as we pray now is a remarkable act of grace. Lofty holy, most high God of heaven and earth. Thank you for listening to our heartbeat and our cry and our need and our passions in this life. Thank you, my Father, for delivering us from all that enslaves. Thank you for the power of the gospel that resides in the person of your Son, that has given us a forever connection and relationship with you so that we can say of the Most High God, He is my Father. And more than that, you taught us in your book that you as Most High God love it when we view you as our Abba, our Dad, our lofty God who cares about every need of your children. Thank you for caring about putting food on my table. Thank you for caring about all that encourages and all that discourages me. Thank you for being a listening father 
but today we want to thank you for being a lofty father who is above all on your throne. Somehow, Father, somehow, help me to just begin to adequately explain who you are, who I am, and who others are in the presence of you, Holy May we forever be changed as Isaiah was by his lofty view and his record of his lofty view of you sitting upon your throne. Don't let this be just another service. Change me and my heart, O oh God. And if that's your prayer, join me in saying and all God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Please be seated. I want you to go back with me, keeping your finger in Isaiah uh, chapter 6. I want you to go back with me to the first chapter of Isaiah, if you will. Find it, please, because I want to set the context for you. For why God gave a vision of himself to Isaiah. And the context for what that vision caused in the heart of Isaiah. And the context in which God was saying to Isaiah, now care about others around you. Watch the context as the book opens. You're just introduced quickly to Isaiah and who it is that he ministers to, namely he ministers to Israel during the reign of a series of kings. And it's at the end of one of those kings, Uzziah, that Isaiah had this great vision of God. Before he had it, Isaiah watched Israel as they lived under a series of kings. And God revealed to him in the opening part of this book what he thought of the peoples of Israel, the chosen people of God, that nation, that Old Testament special group. And before I read to you what God saw of him, let me just, or what God thought of Israel, let me just share this. Have you heard of Lutzer, the pastor of Moody Church, great author? Great Bible student. God's given him a world of wisdom. I heard him interviewed yesterday on a local radio station, and he was asked, what do you think about the church? If you will, the New Testament chosen of God. What do you think the state of the church is? And I listened, and my heart agreed with his heart, and my heart was broken as he began to share sort of like a church in the book of Revelation. The American church sees itself as alive and as the answer for the nations of the world. But instead he feared that the American church is dead when it thinks it's alive. Is anemic when it thinks it's strong. My heart was gripped by that wise man's evaluation and I thought, God, I don't want to be that way. I don't ever want in the brief breath that I have with any church body for them to feel alive when they have work to do on their own hearts before the Lord and when there's a people around them that are far from Him and they need the church to be alive. God looked at Isaiah and through his pen, he said much the same thing of Israel that Lutzer said of the church in America today. And God put it in these terms in the second verse of that first chapter. If you're there, you'll read these words. I have nourished and brought up my children, parenthesis, Israel. I've nourished them and brought them up. And what's the result? And they have rebelled 
against me. What are you of his children and his chosen and his beloved nation of Israel? A baby was born in the Koyanga family. I remember years ago when our second was born. Our oldest was the daughter who was two and a half years old and our second then was born and I was in my early 20s. And God had already opened the door for me to be a lead pastor. From a human perspective, I had no business being a lead pastor at that point in my life. From a divine perspective, that door opened up and I tried my best. I remember specifically preaching a message on how to raise kids with a one-week-old and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. And I knew then in my 20s that I had all the answers because I had the Word of God. And so I just declared it and declared my application of it without a lot of humility. And at the end of the sermon, I don't remember what the sermon was. I just remember the subject. It's like most people, you don't remember sermons. That really encourages every one of us pastors. A dear elderly grandma walked up to me and truthfully offended me because my heart was yet to be humbled, but wisely said to me, Larry, I won't be here 30 years from now, but I'd sure like to hear you preach that same message in 30 years and see how much it changes. And this is what I've learned. It's not so much the message that it's changed because the principles of God's word are true forever. But it's the heart that's been humbled by the experiences of parenting. Right, parents? And wait till you have to watch your kids parent. It's the humility of watching your kids deal with your grandkids begins to let you know something just in minute ways about the heart of God in this one statement. I nourish my kids. And I grew them. I brought them up. But God said they rebelled against those parents who have walked through life and done your best and taught the Bible principles and the kids walked away from them, you know just a little bit about what God's saying in this text. I'm so glad my kids today are walking with God. Not that they were perfect or never rebellious and they're not yet today, but their heart is bent toward God. And that's immense grace. There was a day not that long ago, just a few years ago, when my sister went home to be with the Lord because of that awful disease, Lou Gehrig's ALS. Her oldest son had just graduated from high school, and within a few weeks of her death, he came to live with us. And he walked in the door, and someone wisely advised us before he arrived, he's 18 years old now, though he acted like a 12-year-old. He was 18 years old, and they said, develop a behavioral contract or a behavior contract with him that you and he both sign and that he understands what his responsibilities are, and you do too, and you don't expect more than you've communicated. So we had these chores that we explained to him the day he moved his clothes in. Our 18-year-old nephew looked at those chores and said, okay, I'll do them. And I see there are consequences and I see there are rewards on this contract. So that if I don't do them, I've got a price to pay. And if I do them, I get a reward. I said, is there anything you'd add to the contract? And surprisingly, he didn't add a single chore to his contract. (laughs) 
But here's what he wanted to add. He looked at us after we had just finished saying, you don't have to get a job at 18 years of age. We're here to help you get your higher education. You go to school and you maintain a C average in school and we will pay all your bills and keep you warm and fed. He looked at that contract and he said, Uncle Larry, could we add one more thing? And I said, what's that? He said, to the rewards. I said, what do you want to add to the rewards? He said, how about I get paid for doing my chores? I looked at him and I said, I think that's a great idea. Then I looked at Elaine, her eyes got this big and her fists were drawing together, <laughs> clenched. I just said, hear me out. I said, I think that's a great idea. We'll add to your benefits, you get to eat and sleep indoors if you do these jobs and chores. He put his head down and he said, I get it. I'll do them. Six months into it, nearly two semesters into his first year, he got his report card and failed or nearly failed every course he was taking in the junior college. And we drew the line. You have to get a job and pay your own way through. We'll still give you a roof over your head because God doesn't expect perfection from any of us any day. We just want you to grow. At the end of the next six months, he became so frustrated with his life, he had quit in school and quit. <laughs> he had quit school and he was flipping hamburgers, the only job he could find. That was a God thing. And became so frustrated that he flew off the handle at my bride in my presence. I simply said to him, young man, my children were not allowed to do that. They cannot rebel against this household and its authority and especially my bride. My kids couldn't do that. And you can't either. And it wasn't long until we said we were giving you 90 days and we will help you. And we did help him get set up on his own. That was one of our first experiences with a child that we loved, that we'd drawn to ourselves, that we had said we so want to delight in a holy relationship with you. And they rebelled, he rebelled. If that kind of a story broke the heart of just a couple of sinful people, what do you think it did to the God of heaven and earth to have poured out from eternity past his own son's life it hadn't happened in time, but in God's mind, it had already occurred from eternity past. God's not confined by time. He poured out the greatest sacrifice he could pay. And the response of his people is that we can do a better job than our father can do. Sure, we're his children, but we're not going to listen. How grieved was the heart of God. And then he added to that in the third verse. Just to give you more of an idea of what God's view of Israel was in that Old Testament day in Isaiah's day. The ox knows its owner. And the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, and in this context you can put a parenthesis and put a word in there, though it doesn't say it. But Israel does not know me. I only have time enough just to add this. Israel, in essence, can be said of them by this verse, 
is, and by God who wrote this verse, Israel in essence is proving that animals were more intelligent than they were in that day. Oxen know their owners. Donkeys know where to go to get their food from their master's hand. But Israel doesn't know their master, their Lord, and their God. And so what does God do now? God in Isaiah 6 begins to give hope to Israel through Isaiah the prophet of old when he says to them, You don't even know me. Let me show your prophet who I am. And then he can tell you who I am. In case you haven't had a view of high, low, of high and lofty God of late, God's gripped my heart and somehow I'm praying that God help me to help your people see you and who you are. First thing you're going to see in just a minute is that he's lofty God. It's the whole series, the foundation for it. He is big God on his throne, high and lifted up, seated above the heavens and the earth. And Isaiah, I want you to see me so you can tell my people. But the truth is, hearts of his people had no interest in seeing him and where he was. Does that remind you of anyone? Is there one who said, I will be most high? I have no interest in seeing God on the throne. I have only interest in being God on the throne. Remember? Lucifer of old, that angel of deceit, thinking he was an angel of light, which truthfully, he was an angel of darkness. And that blinded mind said seven times, I will, I will, I will be God and sit on that throne. And he thought he could gather enough of the cherubim and seraphim around him, the angels of heaven, to mount an opposition against God and dethrone him so that he could be placed on the throne. What a foolish, foolish creature. Created by God, thinking he could overpower God. And God cast him from heaven with all of the hosts that rebelled with him. And where did he land? landed my beloved in the garden where he transformed the thinking of Adam and Eve who walked with lofty God and knew who he was in all of his splendor until that day when the one who said I will be God entered their thinking, their garden their house and began to question their God and they changed their view of God and in essence acted as if God and his law for me is not what is essential. What is essential is my happiness. I'll be better off and therefore more happy if I have that fruit. Adam and Eve bought into the lie of the evil one who rejected the deity, the loftiness, the supremacy of most high God. And that is spilled over into the heart of man. Now I've got to do this very quickly with you. God corrected that. In the heart of his people who bought into what Adam and Eve bought into, that they were God, that they knew better, that they should be on the throne and not him, he corrected that by first of all helping Isaiah and then through the prophet his people, helping them reach up and look to him. And what's the first thing we read? I reached up 
by a divine act from above, God gave me a vision. And that vision enabled me to see something no man had seen to this point. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And of course, what does the word throne conjure up in your thinking? My beloved conjures up the place where the king sits. Watch this. That sixth chapter opens up with this word. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah had seen a succession of kings who sat upon the throne, some of whom started reigning well, knowing knowing there was a throne above theirs. But Isaiah watched as king after king that was seated on a human throne, starting to reign well, forgot that God's throne was above theirs, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, one after another, in disgrace. You know how Uzziah died? He began reigning well, fearing the Lord and leading Israel to do the same. He forgot that God was God. And he died, therefore, under the disciplining hand of God with leprosy that no man could cure. God brought him down from his throne. He who had in his own mind toppled God from his lofty throne. He was no more successful than Lucifer. And Isaiah said, people, I saw him on his throne. Tantamount to saying with their experience with fallen king after fallen king, and nobody has toppled him ever from his throne. He is God. He is God, when he saw him, he is God most high. High and lifted up. Might be a good place to say, you haven't been praying for your nation. I just had this conversation before church in the hallway with the dear saint of God. And in our conversation, she was talking about our own country people who have forgotten that he is God. Our own nation has done it, my beloved. And that ought to bring fear to your soul and mind and heart. He alone is high and lofty. And there is no decree, there is no opinion, and there is no law that is greater than his. Listen, all tried it. Look back on your life and answer this question. When I thought I knew better than God and did it my way as opposed to his, how did that turn out for you? Real good? Would somebody say no? Not so good. Do we think we know better what a family structure should look like in our country than God has established and decreed and made clear in his book? Are we most high God? Our nation's in trouble thinking they are. We are. Does a mother have the right to determine when a baby lives and does not live by her own choice? Not so. That belongs to high, lofty God who is on the throne. Do I have a right to something I desire more than I desire God? We're going to talk about it next week. No, he's big God who will have no idol before him. He wants us to desire him and him alone because he alone is on the throne. 
great call of a view of God is simply this. When your life's messed up because of your choices or the choices of others that have broken your life, then could I encourage you, reach up. Look up to the one who is on the throne, who alone is most high God, who knows best how to bring you out of all your troubles and follow his plan, his prescription, his hope that he offers. Because the evil one and all who are following him trying to be God will never lead you to joy and contentment and peace and happiness in this present life or the life to come. He leads you to death and misery. Yo. God help us to help people in this world see him holy, high, and lifted up. We need five more hours just on that subject. What happens when Isaiah saw God? What was God doing in his heart? God caused him to reach in. When he gave him a view of himself, when he caused him to reach up and look to him and see him like he is, it caused him to have a heart that was honest with itself. And God, by his spirit, led him to reach within himself and make an announcement. Woe is me, for I am undone. I learned something this week. Those are the very first words of Isaiah in the first six chapters. In all the rest that Isaiah had to say in those first six chapters, he was quoting God. And when he had heard God, and now finally when he had seen God with his eye, caused him to make an announcement. And his first announcement was not. <laughs> Those people wish somebody would do something about them. What was his first announcement? I got problems, man. I saw the Lord. Look at me. Next to him, not next to him, next to him. Woe is me. It's really interesting. The word woe in the original is made up of mostly vowels. And as they're put together, here's the English pronunciation of those vowels. Oh, I. sounded like me last Tuesday afternoon in the evening after a root canal was done on my tooth. Just before Vicodin became my best friend of the week. Pain! Oh! I! Nothing Elaine could say or any around me could say that could ease my pain. That's Isaiah when he saw the Lord. Oh, my. It is alas. I am undone. I have no hope. I am a man of unclean lips. And in case you think he's just talking about the verbiage he's using, my speech isn't real clean. It's not what he's doing. He knows that every word that comes out of our mouths issues from our hearts, and our hearts, as we express them, are far from God's. Who is lofty and holy. Wow. Oh, I, I am unclean. You've got to know he had in his mind 
Uzziah, who just lost his life to leprosy. Who as king, if he walked down the street, had to do what every other citizen in his kingdom had to do if they were leprous. They had to announce to all who could hear them, unclean, unclean. And he was responsible to cross the street to stay far away from those he was passing by. Lest they be touched by his uncleanness. And Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. And I knew what my heart was really like. People today have been with God and understand what hearts are like. Do not shout out. I need to work on my self-esteem. What a lie our culture has sold to God's people and our nation. They who see the Lord know what the Lord says about their hearts. We esteem ourselves too highly. There is only one worth esteeming. And my joy does not come from esteeming myself. It comes from seeing and esteeming and lifting up and living for high and lofty God who is on the throne and no one stopped him from it. I'm a man of then his next words as he saw that vision caused him to reach out and make this astute observation. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The man was broken over his own sin, his own heart before a holy God, is a man who is now able to help others. You see, when Isaiah said, Why? God sent one of those seraphim with a hot coal from the altar. That altar was where the flame consumed the sacrifice and the blood was thrown upon it that covered and cleansed the sin of his people. And the man who says, Why? To him, God says, let your lips be touched by the sacrifice. That's not saying I'll clean up your tongue. It's saying I'll clean up the heart that the tongue belies as self-focused, as wanting to sit on the throne, as opposed to recognizing who is on it. <coughs> That man is ready to say to the people, I am where you are. I've been where you are. And I beg of you, cry out, O I By faith then believe that when you make that confession, God will send from the fire that condemns and judges and takes care of sin. And with that, he'll send the blood of the Lamb to cleanse you from all your own hearts. Let's create a holy moment. Maybe you've never understood what it is that brings that great misery in life to you. Having your own way does not bring you joy. It brings you the opposite. Because God created you to enjoy him as the one on the throne, not to be on the throne. And the only way to enjoy this present life and the life which is to is to admit who you are, one who has tried to be God and taken over your 
life. Maybe you want to say something like this, oh God. Oh, ah, be woes me. Forgive me for trying to run my life. I lay it at your feet. Take me. Cleanse me. And use me. My beloved, the only way to become effective in the lives of others is to recognize who sits on the throne. What I'm like on the inside, one who wants to sit there. And to appeal, forgive me, God. And cleanse me by the blood of your Son and create in me a new heart. But let you be God, for you are God whether I let you be or not. No one can topple. Worth coming for? Yes. Your turn. So, God uses those who reach up, in, and out. He can't use me when I don't see Him where He sits. When I don't let that view of Him open my eyes to what I'm like. And when I don't reach out to others who are in the same boat as me and help them in their walk and in their life, which leads me to say that's what Connection Group Ministry is all about. I couldn't wait to give you this view of God and yourself and others as the basis for the reason for this approach this help that God has given you and me. It's in a small group opportunity that I get to hear your story about God helping you to see Him and God helping you get past yourself and thereby helping you to help your children and your grandchildren and your neighbors and your co-workers and your fellow students' kids. We don't help one another. Isaiah didn't see the Lord for himself. It was so that he could pass it off to others and to help them. It's the greatest, greatest foundational reason I know of. I can't wait to sit down with the people who are willing to come to my house and hear their story and get help story of my life. That's what God did for Isaiah and the children of Israel. That's what this approach will help you do. Will you look at the person next to you and say, I need you to help me see God. asking you today to register for this ministry for that foundational reason. I don't call it a ministry, really. It's a way of life. Doing it together with God's people. And I know there are those who fear this ministry, who do not want it to be a part of our church life. I just want to say, I know it takes time for all of us to process through it, and I'm praying that you'll process through it. But my beloved, this is a great foundational reason for you being a part of it. You need the help of others, and I do. And I'm a pastor. I need your help, your story. 
I can reach up, reach in, and reach out so that God can move me to reach up, reach in, and reach out. Whatever you do, don't fight against that. Let us help each other. I ask you to register for that. I advise you and counsel you to register for this this approach. It's not new, by the way. It's been around long before Larry got here. Could I just clarify that? Hello? It's just us strengthening what you've already started. You can register by filling out the form that was in your handout this morning or that was in the book, friendship book. Register as it came by. Fill out that form and just leave it in your seat. We'll pick it up. Or you can fill it out and drop it by the Welcome Center. If you don't have one, there are more at the Welcome Center. Or you can even do a new thing. If you haven't been there yet, we debuted in this last week our new website. It's fantastic. Thank you to, he's shaking his head. No, don't say it. But Eric Rabarsik has done a great job to help us put that together and even able to register online and send that as an email to the office if that's an easier way for you. Giving you so many ways to do it. But do it because you need to reach up, reach in, reach out like Isaiah and Israel will. Let's stand together, please. may have for the first time understood what your heart is like before a holy God. I invite you to come as we sing and let us know that today you ask God to touch you with the blood of the Lamb. You cried out, oh I, I'm far from God, unclean, so unlike him. I've given him the reign of my life today. I invite you to come.